Hi, this is Steve. Imagine the responsibility of telling the story of one of the most important, controversial, and complicated figures in American history. Imagine trying to encapsulate someone who is as hated as they are revered, a person who has pulled themselves up from the brink of damnation and transformed themselves into a religious warrior, a hero to some and a devil to others. Imagine trying to capture such a person at 24 frames a second. What battles would you have to fight? What compromises would you be pressured to make? This was the challenge that 34-year-old director Spike Lee, cinematographer Ernest Dickerson, Denzel Washington, and a cast and crew of dedicated artists and craftsmen faced when they took on the monolith that was the life of Malcolm X. This is, without question, a great film, with a tour de force performance from Denzel Washington under the dynamic, inventive, and challenging direction of Spike Lee. It is a document of American history, as powerful, complex, and challenging as the man himself. Of course, we wouldn't even try to discuss such a complex and powerful film without the help of producer, director, and actor Andre Gordon. So, if you haven't seen this amazing movie, we recommend you take your own journey to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Malcolm X along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And, if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to, hopefully, a different take on what the entire entertainment industry has been discussing for over a week. There have been no shortage of opinions on the slap heard around the world, but perhaps John and I can bring some of those opinions into sharper relief as we discuss the event in terms of fundamental values. So that's a conversation about the Oscar slap and values on Patreon and Malcolm X with special guest Andre Gordon this Friday on The Cinephiles. Hi, everyone. This is Steve jumping in before we begin our exploration of Malcolm X with a warning. As in Do the Right Thing, we've decided to include the use of the N-word in this podcast. Now, we know this word can be very difficult for some people to hear. However, we feel that it's also central to the film, and to omit it or bleep it out would actually be a disservice to the filmmakers and the man whose life they are exploring. Malcolm X is a powerful and challenging film, and we don't feel we can discuss it while hiding from its most difficult aspects. And so, without further ado, we are proud to present part one of our exploration of Spike Lee's Malcolm X. You want to flip? That's right. Watch your lift there. Because you may sit. All right. Man. Looks white, don't it? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, a voiceover artist, and um, proud to be friends with you, Steve. Thank you. And proud to be longtime friends with our guest, who we are welcoming back to the show to talk about one of the most incredible biopics ever made, and that is writer, director, producer, actor, owner of Four Horsemen Films, commercial actor extraordinaire, theater director extraordinaire, teacher, and dare I say it now, quickly becoming one of our favorite cinephiles guests, the great Andre Gordon. Guys, 
I love you both. <laughs> I, I just want to point out occasionally there are moments where I really do wish this is a video podcast because <laughs> the performance, the, the in, interpretation through dance of yeah. John's introduction by Mr. Gordon was absolutely sensational. It really, really was. <laughs> we've been doing that for 20 years, my man. <laughs> 20 years we've been doing that. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, we're welcoming Andre back to continue the season of Lee yeah. with a, I mean, to say this is a big film is just really an understatement. John, you say this is one of the great biopics of all time. I have to agree. We are talking about Malcolm X. Andre, do you remember how you first came to this film? Woo. Uh, yes. Yes, I do. I do remember how I first came to the film. And... I came to the film, interestingly enough, at that time in my life where I had my eyes crossed, arms crossed, legs crossed, like, okay, let's let's see. And to be honest, I just was not educated. Let's see what this is movie about Islam is all about. You know? And I want to say at the time, I think we've discovered that most of my relationships have been either with Hispanic, Jewish, or white women. And, and I remember, you know, being like, what's wrong with her, huh? Okay, let me, well, let me watch this movie. And the journey it took me on, mm. the, the transformation it took me on emotionally, the, the scope, the way that it opened my mind, the insight it gave me, wow. I just, uh, John, your assessment of it being the greatest biopic of all time, I thought it then, but didn't, I, again, didn't have the life experience now i'm like wow it truly is certainly one of the greatest uh for sure um john do you remember how you first came to it yeah absolutely uh going through a very very tough time in my life my first trip through college um i was um i had gone well i joined the service and i had gone i had been kind of lost because i'd been doing reserve stuff and trying to go to college at the same time but i was really unhappy and so I saw the trailer for this and this this was like Titanic, like the pop culture zeitgeist was kind of getting into Malcolm X right around the same time that Spike was inspired to make this movie. So books were coming out. I remember that I had gotten a CD of Malcolm X's speeches that I would mm. drive around and listen to all the time. And this is no bullshit. And then the trailer for the film dropped and I was like, oh, my God, I cannot wait to go see this. So at the time, didn't have a lot of friends at college. So I went by myself to the wow. Fair Oaks Theater in Fairfax, Virginia. There was maybe five people in the theater. And I remember it was one of those like stadium seating the theaters, one of those rare ones at the time in the early 1990s. And I went and sat there and I was absolutely transformed as a human being after that movie. Just all the natural impulses to, you know, fight against racism, to bring a, a spotlight on it, um, to the causes and belief in things. I remember that movie encapsulated for me so powerfully in a way that Do the Right Thing kind of exposed it. But Malcolm X showed me a whole new idea of what that could look like and educated me on who Malcolm X was. And I went after that and just devoured about everything I could find on Malcolm X. Um, and I left my fraternity because there's a line in that movie that says, if you don't uh, believe in an organization, you don't know much about an organization, you shouldn't join it. 
and that was a big mistake I had made at the time that was killing me. And I remember uh, for the Equalizer 2 press junket, I got to tell Denzel Washington, because I interviewed him, thank you for making the movie and thank you for changing my life. And so this movie, when I tell you this is a seminal movie in my life, this is a seminal movie in my life. So wow. I remember wow. everything about Sigourney wow. Weaver's this uh, in um, 19. 19- I, I certainly can't, don't, don't have that experience, but it was a big movie for me as well. And mm. I saw it in the theater. I think it was in San Francisco. I went in to see it mm. and I knew about Malcolm X ish the way that, you know, you kind of know about historical figures, but which is to say, I really didn't know about him. And I would say like, for me, if do the right thing, woke me up mm. to a bunch of stuff in the world, Malcolm X grounded me if that makes sense is like it may, it gave me a, a much deeper holistic understanding of an experience. And man, it was so powerful to me. And I watched it many, many, many times. Mm. I, cause there's so much here and it was funny. I hadn't watched it in probably 10 years and watching it this time again, uh-huh. there's more stuff. Yeah. You watch it enough that where the lines start to come back to you and you're like, Oh my God, I remember everything that's going to happen in the scene. I remember every exchange, every word that's going to be uttered. It's crazy when you've seen it so many times, how it all just comes flooding back as soon as you start watching. I also think it's really crazy. The times when you watch things in your life, Mm. John, you were um, in the service. And for me, I was just really getting acclimated to pop culture and, and, and popular things. I think the bulls had just beat the blazers uh, and, and the championship, I, I think it was like 92. Right. And, you know, I was trying yeah, to like, yeah. you know, get into basketball and watch these movies and, and honestly discover my blackness. Right. Mm-hmm. Getting into these different. And so I found myself while I was watching that movie at the time, wrestling with some of the ideals that Malcolm X had and then agreeing with some of the ideals that he professed. And it was just really interesting to watch that dichotomy battle against one another at a young age and then to see how they've resolved each other or grown farther apart in my older age. You know what's interesting about this film, and you really just kind of made me think of it, is that in in movies of this kind where you go on a journey with a character who changes and starts off in a very dark place and then kind of finds himself, mm. most of those movies you agree with everything that character does once they change. You know what I mean? Hmm. And in this film, I can be profoundly moved by each transformation in his journey and completely understand why he he believes what he believes at that time and also disagree or disagree partially. You know what I mean? Like really agree with this part of it and really go. I mean, as the white guy sitting here, really go like, well, uh, wait, I don't (laughs) I don't think I'm a devil, sir. (laughs) You know, like. Uh, well, and, and one last thing. Sorry, Steve. Um, yeah. The film itself is constructed like almost like the story of Henry V, right? He has wasted his youth mm. pursuing his carnal desires and his self-hatred. And it isn't until he is called to serve because of certain situations that we discover there's a whole nother uh, path for him to change the world. And this is what I find when I watch the movie, uh, even this time around hammered at home even more as I was watching the movie, that if you view it through that prism, it really is a Shakespearean tale that is being told here um, in such a beautiful way by Spike Lee. 
You're so right. That's such a good that's such hmm. a good analogy for it. So um, a little bit of pre-production. Obviously, this is based on the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. Malcolm was killed in 65. The book came out in 66. And one of the interesting things is that some of the transformations that occurred in the later years of Malcolm's life happened while he was t- ex- ex- telling his life story to Alex Haley. Wow. And so it's, it's right in the middle. This is all happening in the middle of all this. Believe it or not, the rights to the film were bought by Marvin Wirth in 1967. <laughs> wow. Just a year after the book came out. But here's the crazier part. Marvin Wirth, who is a white guy, by the way, met Malcolm X on the streets of Harlem when he was buying weed from him. Huh. He knew Malcolm X then. And this is, he said he was, this is what he said. He said he was 16 or 17, but looked older. He was a very witty guy, a funny guy. And he had this extraordinary charisma. He was a great dancer and a great dresser. He was very good looking, very tall. And girls always noticed him. He was quite a special guy. Hmm. It's so nuts to me (laughs) that a dude that met Malcolm at that era is the guy who bought the rights to the movie. Yeah. And he spent the next 20 years trying to get this movie made. He actually he actually made a documentary about Malcolm in 1971 that was nominated for an Oscar. Wow. Yeah. And then he went out and had many directors involved, many scripts written. Yeah. Um, one of the first people that he brought the story to to write a screenplay was James Baldwin. Mm. Hmm. So James Baldwin wrote a script for Malcolm X, and then he wrote a book about his experience trying to write a script for Malcolm X, and this is the title of the book. It's One Day When I Was Lost, a scenario based on Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X, and he says, and this is what he said about it, he said, I think that I would rather be horsewhipped or incarcerated in the forthright bedlam of Bellevue than repeat the adventure. (laughs) That is how much he hated working on this script. Wow. David Mamet wrote a script of this. Oh, interesting. Charles Fuller wrote a script. So this is 20 years of trying to tell the story. Yeah. I want to read those scripts. Yeah. I want to right. read their versions of it. I mean, there is, I think the, the James Baldwin one does have connections into this version. Cool. Um, but James Baldwin also said he wanted his name completely taken off. Um, there's another screenwriter who came in that worked on the James Baldwin version, and then mm-hmm. Spike rewrote that version. So parts of it might be from James Baldwin, but how could we know how how much of it? Yeah, yeah. Spike Lee, by the way, read the autobiography in high school and said it was one of the most important books he had ever read in his entire life. And when he met Ernest Dickerson in film school at NYU, they at that time were talking about wanting to do a movie about Malcolm X. Yeah. But when they finally decide, Warner Brothers finally gets the money, they hire Norman Jewison to make the film. And the thing is, Norman Jewis is a good director. We talked about in the heat of the night. Um, he had worked with Denzel Washington on a soldier story. Yeah. And he is the person who brought in Denzel to play Malcolm. Right. A lot of people think it was Spike, but it was Norman yeah. Jewis. Yeah. And then there was a huge uproar yeah. of which one of the most vocal people was Spike Lee saying <laughs> a white. He basically was like, I'll do respect. <laughs> yeah. All due respect. A white man shouldn't direct this film. All due yeah. respect. Well, and it sounds like Spike Lee does respect Norman Jewison. Yeah. Like, th- this wasn't combative. And after this uproar, he had a meeting with Norman Jewison. Norman listened to him. And it sounds like he walked away very, very gracefully and said Spike should direct this movie. 
It's it's a rarity in Hollywood, Steve. Yeah. That is a rarity in Hollywood. Thank God, uh, Trey. Like I can't imagine well, in any other way. And we get to see actually what Norman Jewison does working with Denzel Washington later on in in Hurricane. Yeah, right. Which which is a damn good movie. <laughs> it is a good movie, and it's a really good flick, which he should have won the Oscar for, by the way. <laughs> Fair. And to say that this puts Spike into the middle of a shitstorm is because he gets pressure from every direction. Because there are obvious, there are a lot of people in the we'll say the white establishment or just the you know who really don't like Malcolm X. Yeah. So they don't want this person glorified. And then there are people on the other side of the spectrum who are like, are you going to ruin this important person? And so there are protests against Spike Lee from every possible direction. Yeah. By the way, Amiri Baraka, who uh, is a great playwright and poet who wrote The Dutchman, he called Spike, I'd never heard this term before, but he called him a buppy, uh, which is like a black version of a yuppie. And said, basically, Spike is way too middle class to be able to understand Malcolm X. Wow. The other thing that's going on is that Spike goes, this needs to be a three-hour movie, and it needs a $30 million budget. And W Warner Brothers says, this needs to be a two-hour movie and have a $20 million budget. And this is, you know, it's interesting that on Spike Lee's films, after a Spike Lee joint, it says, by any means necessary which of course is a Malcolm X quote. Mm -hmm. And that is how he and Ernest Dickerson felt about how the fuck they were going to get this movie made (laughs) by any means necessary. And finally, basically what they did was they said, okay, we'll do it for the $20 million or maybe it was 22 or 23 at that point. And to, to the two of them said, we're still making a $30 million movie basically. (laughs) And when we run out of money, we run out of money. And and one of the producers, they had the um, the advice from Coppola that came through one of the producers, which is get the studio a little bit pregnant, which <laughs> is have them put a lot of money into the movie and then they can't back out right. at a certain point. That's genius. Get a little bit pregnant. Get them a little bit pregnant. Yeah, and I, I remember this being a story. I remember, you know, reading all the stuff on this before the film came out, how he, he was going. And it was like trades were following this story because – Spike had obviously been huge out of do the right thing. This was a controversial character because like you or person like because like you, Steve, not a lot of people in the white establishment knew who Malcolm X was. Or if they did, they had only known him as this radical anti-white person rather than a person who because surprise the media didn't cover his conversion quite as strongly as it covered his radical points of views when he was with the Nation of Islam. Uh, and so I remember this being something that people were monitoring and following. I remember there was a big deal because he went to Oprah and he went to Bill Cosby and other notable black. I know Cosby's persona non grata, but we're telling the story here. He went to a lot of prominent black people and stars to ask for money, hat in hand, to ask for money to sponsor or to support the film. And I don't know about YouTube, but I mean, raising money, I, I can't. That's one of the things about being a director that I would never want to do is to go to people like, let me pitch you my movie and give me money, please. I, I just I don't understand that process and how soul sucking it must be at times. Not only is it tough, but imagine going to, to do it with a knowingly, quote unquote, pigeonholed <laughs> type of story and a controversial yeah, right. polarizing person. So it's almost like an uphill battle that you don't think you can necessarily win. 
normally pitch movies that that appeal. This is like it appeals to a, a, a minority within the minority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he read. You know, I said there was a lot of scripts written. Spike read them all. It was the script by Arnold Pearl, which is the script that was based on the James Baldwin script. As I said, that Spike took, he rewrote that one. Um, Denzel apparently took a a full year off to prepare for this role. Wow, a full year. Didn't eat pork. Studied the Quran. Didn't Oof. smoke. Like he took this to say he took it seriously is a ridiculous understatement. Yeah. Uh, before making the movie, Spike went to Chicago to meet with the head of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan. And what he says, he says, I didn't go for approval, but I wanted to meet with him because he felt that he should. And it, what he said was that Farrakhan wasn't worried about how Malcolm was portrayed. He was worried about how Elijah Muhammad would be portrayed. I mean, no surprise Farrakhan wanted to make because protecting, you know, the uh, icon of the Nation of Islam. Still, still. Yep. Malcolm was Around. excommunicated, so you, he protects Elijah. You know. And Dr. Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife, was a consultant on the film. Assalamu alaikum. How do you feel? Who do we want to hear? Are we going to bring him on? Yes, we're going to bring him on. We hear the introduction of Malcolm X, and then we're going to start, and by the way, this was not how the movie was initially going to start, with a speech. <laughs> And we see, and I, I'm sure, John, and maybe you too, Andre, you see that American flag, and my brain immediately goes to Patton. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that I charge the white man. I charge the white man with being the greatest murderer on earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest kidnapper on earth. Here's the thing about this speech. So Denzel, they schedule it. You're going to come in and record this speech because he's off camera. So he is planning to go into an ADR session in a studio and he shows up and there is a whole audience. Hmm. They want him to do the speech in front of a crowd for real. Wow. I think that's a, actually kind of an amazing directorial choice <laughs> to do that. I don't know about surprising someone with it, but having them do it in front of a It's just going to be different than doing it alone in front of a microphone. I mean, would you two surprise Denzel if you're directing him in a movie? I mean, I'd be <laughs> Andre. <laughs> nope, I would not. I mean, I'd be intimidated to do it. You know, maybe they were close enough to where he felt like he could. Yeah, maybe. But even then, you really want to respect the actor's process and hmm. include them in. But hey, it worked. In general, I don't like surprising actors. I know there are a lot of directors who do stuff like I like to have a conversation, John. This is what we're going to do. And like talk to you about it. That's how I like to work. I think the choice of this speech in particular to start this movie is so because it is a dark speech and the music is heavy. There is no place in this world that that man can go and say he created peace and harmony. Everywhere he's gone, he's created happiness. Everywhere he's gone, he's created destruction. And we intercut that flag with images of Rodney King. Mm. Yeah. How are you feeling about this film at this moment? You know, the Rodney King story, saga, it, it was, it, I'm just shocked because it was all difficult while it happened. And that I'm shocked that I'm 42 now and it's st- like, we're still seeing the same Im- images, you know? Mm. But watching that, beating and underscored with that speech 
integrated with, you know, you know, we, we first are branded with the American flag and, and we see what it's burning into. It was, it was really, uh, it, it, it was emotionally stirring to say the least. I, I think that's what I had forgotten about. And I guess, cause when you're young, you're full of piss and vinegar. And so when a film starts out like this, you're like, yeah, but when you're older, right. And you've seen what that behavior can sometimes lead to. And certainly we've, you know, seen the protests over the last couple of years and seen the police come out and at times most of the time, in my opinion, instigate reaction from the crowd from to, to kind of paint it as if they're the out of control ones, not the people with the badges and the guns and the batons. And so for me, I had forgotten how in your face of it began. And this is gutsy by Spike. And this is why Spike is one of the greatest filmmakers ever because as a black filmmaker, he put it in your face. He put it in your face. Fucking deal with it. This is the reality. Deal with it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to drive him Miss Daisy you on this one. We are going to put it in your face, what he said. And you're either, you're either going to walk out by the end of the opening credits or you're going to stick around and understand what kind of film we're telling. And it was such a powerful speech. Uh, and the you know it's burning to where you see the X, which I think is genius. Yeah. Uh, and so I I thought it was just a very gutsy, ballsy move by Spike to be very clear about what kind of film he's telling here. And thank God he made this when he was younger. Yeah. Uh, because I don't know what kind of Malcolm X film we would have gotten out of him now that he's had more circumspect. He's more circumspect now. He's lived longer. Mm-hmm. I like that a young Spike Lee made this movie. It has an energy to it that you need it to tell this story to make people stand up and notice and no one was doing movies like this no one black white purple yellow brown whatever no one was doing movies this in your face like spike did you know in my opinion it's it's like the perfect moment for him to make this film because he's (laughs) young enough to be to have that courage and that aggression and that i'm gonna go right at this thing but he's had enough films under his belt Mm -hmm. that he's mature enough as a filmmaker and with enough technique and craftsmanship to pull this off um, I think as this is an aggressive speech, I want to talk about the speech first mm-hmm. as a, uh, a white person, I cannot find fault or disagree with anything, almost anything in this speech. I think as a, as a rhetorical stance, these statements that he's making are easily backed up. Now I might, you know, obviously they're very aggressive in the way they talk about white people. And I believe that dividing people up by race is actually, doesn't actually make sense or work, but his statements are powerful. You're not an American, you are the victim of America. You didn't have a choice coming over here. He didn't say black man, black woman, come on over and help me build America. He said, nigga, get down in the bottom of that boat and I'm taking you over there to help me build America. I don't think I can argue with those statements. Do you know what I mean? Like those are true. And then to intercut that with Rodney King, it's yeah. like he's saying, oh, you have a problem with this? You think this is crazy? You think what this guy is saying is nuts? Look at this. Yeah. Look at Watch it. your representatives in badges literally beating, trying to beat a guy to death. And all those motherfuckers got off. And I'll I'll never forget that. And I'll never let that go. Because they were teeing off on that guy, the defenseless guy. And look, whatever he did, whatever he did. But the way they were teeing off on him, it just shows you an anger. And that's what he's 
so dis- so brilliantly putting in your face. You might be angry at this, what, what what Malcolm is saying, but look at why he's saying it, and look at what you have done, and look at you, what your how your anger manifests itself, how you punch down, and that's the difference. And if the situations had been reversed in life. And black people were the majority and they were doing things to white people. White people would be falling all over themselves for a white Malcolm X. And that's why I think we see now with the CRT, the bullshit CRT stuff and all the stuff that's going on. And I'm sorry, y'all, if you're listening, we're going to get political. This is a political fucking movie. This is fear. This is fear yet again of the people who were involved in persecuting black people two generations ago, having their stories told to their grandchildren and having their grandchildren go to mom and, or grandma and grandpa, did you do this? Were you part of this? Were you there protesting? Were you burning crosses? Were you hanging black people from trees? Were you trying to keep them from succeeding in life? Did you do that, grandpa? And they don't want to be confronted with the sins of their past rather than understanding, accepting, and, and presenting things in context. They want it to be hidden, buried underneath, and they're hiding behind the, the falsity that it's somehow insulting America or that you're un-American if you bring up our past, our horrible past with race. And in fact, that's how you grow is embracing all the things that you did in the past, just like Malcolm does in the movie. He understands all the bad things he did in the past and he grows from those lessons. And that's what we have to do as a country. And so I appreciate Spike, even now in 2022, a film like this still 30 years later, still affecting me the way it does. And the other thing we get is you get the brilliance of his speech, of, of his language, yeah. Malcolm X's way of speaking. He says, no, we've never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. And then at this moment, we do this, this I would call this a triple whammy, which is one, we're going to burn the American flag. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's a big, big, powerful thing. The second thing is that it burns into an X, which is and the symbol and the meaning of X, which we're going to get to later on in the film, is important. And then to me, and I don't know how you feel, but this is a direct reference to burning a cross to me. Like this is an answer to burning a cross in a way. That's a lot. And it is heavy. And I think at this moment, you know, four or five minutes into this film, you're going fuck what am i in for here and then spike lee does the brilliant thing of going to something that's so joyful and so fun in the next moment by the way this is all one shot that we're going to see this is supposed to be boston this is believe it or not and i think this is insane that they did this i believe this is their first day of shooting Which is, I mean, Andre, you could speak to this. Do you generally do your toughest shot on day one? Day one is is cakewalk day. Let's just get the yeah. easy ones out. Let's get in a rhythm, but not the not the tough stuff. Eric Dickerson says this is the most expensive shot of Spike's entire career. Wow. It is a huge tracking shot. You know, we talked about oneers that are in Do the Right Thing that were like performance actor kind of just one shot and, and that they weren't the Goodfellas touch of evil, huge track. This is the Goodfellas touch of evil, huge tracking shot. Yeah. It's it's a dude with a steady cam on a crane. The steady cam comes down to street level. It moves through the street. We have tons of extras. We have a an, an elevated train and we move all the way over to Spike Lee getting his shoe shined. I feel like this opening shot was saying, 
I can do any type of movie that I want to do, whether it be films that you quote unquote are in my genre or the big studio glossy, as you said, Goodfellas on a crane, take us through the city, land on your mark shot. I, I almost feel like it was him saying, what? This is my first shot of the movie. And I think it's no coincidence that he did it the first day of filming. Wow. Absolutely. Uh, Want to know the two of the, or or three of the movies that Spike and Ernest were studying as they prepared for this film? Any yeah. thoughts? I don't know. On the Waterfront? No, no. Although Spike, I know that Spike loves On the Waterfront. Yeah. And maybe he did study that one too. It was Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, that makes sense. And the thing that they said that Ernest Dickerson said about Lawrence of Arabia was the thing that blew them away was not the huge epic wide shot, which they loved and are amazing. He said what blew him away about Lawrence of Arabia was the way David Lean uses close-ups. Yep. And what's interesting to me about that is I remember what David Lean said was that a epic is the combination of the huge and the close-up, the wide and the personal. Um, and the other two movies that they looked at a lot and the cinematography they looked at a lot was Gordon Willis and the Godfather one and two. Oh yeah. And I could totally see, particularly in this scene, the Godfather two, like the scene in the street fair mm-hmm. yeah. for the murder. Like I could totally see how that influence is hitting here and what Spike wanted to do. And the reason this shot is so big is he wanted to announce him. He wanted to say, no, this is the kind of movie this is. Right. 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 I mean, both opening shots, right? The opening speech tells you the what this film is going to tackle and how in your face it's going to be. And then the second shot is him showing you how much he's advanced as a filmmaker. And it's almost like, to, you know, because a lot of people were, wanted Norman Jewison. They they fought for Norman Jewison. See? Liberal, uh, Hollywood's not as liberal as you'd think, people. And people fought for Norman Jewison to do this film and were mad that a young punk like Spike Lee would dare to speak up with an icon and take a movie away from him and so a lot of these older directors were out there in the press kind of bashing Spike Lee. And this is Spike Lee's, I think, opening shot of saying, it's in the right hands. Y'all can calm yeah. the hell down, you know? <laughs> Let's take a moment to honor Spike Lee's outfit. Get a bunch <laughs> of the costumes. Yeah, We're going to get it Woo. part of the film. I a mean, suit suit. suit. Yeah. Um, uh, this is, of course, the great, great Ruth Carter yeah. who did do the right thing will go on to do black panther i mean it's one of the, one of the great costume peoples of all of all time america yeah yeah, yeah yeah um and he and it's not just it's not just the outfit it's the walk there is a specific this is how you walk in a zoot suit yep you know <laughs> and he moves through this crowd if you know it's huge huge tracking shot all the way straight into a barber shop where we get, we immediately are hearing gossip and what's going on between people there. By the way, Ernest Dickerson said he wanted five distinct looks for mm-hmm. this film. And this is the most nostalgic. And this is where they're really referencing classic Hollywood Technicolor. You know, he really wanted that warm feeling of it. And we see them putting together something with lye and eggs. And for me, I have no idea about any of this when I first saw this film. I knew nothing about this at all. Charlie, where's homeboy? Hey, Leto. Yeah. Your man out here waiting on you. And then we get our first glimpse of Malcolm X. Yeah, he is. Hey, fix to get that first calculator on, eh, homeboy? And he is as country looking and out of place looking as you could possibly imagine. Don't be scared, son. 
You ain't got nothing to worry about. You in the hands of an expert. Yeah, I had no idea about this stuff either. Like, I had yeah. no clue about any of that. So, yeah, fascinating. And uh, he sits down in that chair, and Spike starts applying the conch. And, and I love, by the way, the guy, the older guy says, My hair was just like yours. Look what he did for me. Pulls off his hat, and we see that he's bald. Don't scare the man no more than you're scared already. What we see, what's so great, is you see him first going like, oh, I heard this is supposed to hurt. This is going to hurt. Feel good, don't it? Yeah, real good, don't it? Yeah, it's all right. You're going to feel better than that in a minute. It is. heating up a little bit there, Shorty. Shorty, it's time to heat up there a little bit. It's all right. Feeling better and better, isn't it? <laughs> Just hold on. I'm holding, but it's heating. And then it starts to hurt him so much that they have to restrain him. Yeah. It's just an amazing, an amazing, th- I, I think this is such an incredible symbol of what the movie is trying to tell us. I have distinct memories of sitting on the floor with product in my hair. Wow. Just, it's so sad doing yeah. whatever I could so that my hair would look more white. So I wouldn't get teased at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the jerry curl phase and the, you know, <laughs> the relax phase. I mean, my hair took a beating. And then in, in college, it was blonde, platinum for a little while. John I remember that. that. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> so it's funny because you look at how he was like, yeah, you know, having to be held down, but willingly did so because this is what he felt yeah. like he had to do. Yep. Well, and, and it's and, and that it was just normal. Oh yeah. Finally, they wash the the conch out of his head, and his hair is covered with like a towel. And then there is the slow reveal as they pull the fabric back, and we see that straight red hair. And what is the first thing that Malcolm X says when he sees it? Looks white, don't it? This is such a brilliant scene that shows you what Spike is trying to tell you. On a subtle level, right? Because you're going to get lost in the surface of this. This is a fun moment between two guys, and one of them is trying to like straighten their hair, and you know the the burning and all the five, but all great black character actors. Joe Seneca there is the one who lifts his hat. I remember him in The Verdict and stuff. Mm. He's just a great, great actor. And so seeing them all chime in, which is the barbershop. Look, LeBron James has a show called The Barbershop now on HBO Max. You know, it's just that idea that. At the barbershop, that's where you go to have the fun banter and the back and forth and the questions or the conversations and all of that. But then he's saying, even after all we've experienced by white people, we are so conditioned to see them as the thing to aspire to that we are willing to harm ourselves (laughs) in order to look more like them. It is just so powerful what he's hammering home to you in overt and subtle ways from the first opening moments of the movie to the opening from the credits to this incredible scene. And then this moment here with, with Malcolm that they are black people are willing to endure this kind of stuff just to look more palatable as Andre said to white people, to avoid the criticism, to feel like you fit in more, all of that was, which is another form of slavery. You know, and it's just so powerful. I remember he's saying that in the opening speech. Then we go from that to now back outside. By the way, this next long shot, long tracking shot, was shot on the same damn day, the first day. (laughs) And they were fighting daylight to get the second shot in. I mean, that first shot, that's a whole day's work as far as I can tell. That's a day. Yeah. 
But now they're doing the second shot and the sun is going down trying to knock it out. And now if it was joyful to see to see Spike Lee shorty in his outfit, seeing him and Denzel in the blue doing the walk, it's like so fun. And then we hit a freeze frame. And this is the thing is we started in this really, really fucking heavy speech, went into this joyful thing. And now we're in a freeze frame, and we hear D- Malcolm's voice say, When my mother was pregnant with me, a party of Klansmen on horseback surrounded our house in Omaha, Nebraska. They brandished guns and shouted for my father to come out. So again, the tonal shift back to the heavy. Now these hooded Klansmen said the good white Christians would not stand for his troublemaking and to get out of town. And then they break all the windows with the rifle butts, and you see these kids inside cowering in fear they broke every window with their rifle butts before riding off into the night they rode off into the moonlight on their horses as suddenly as they had come and what we see is what i can only describe is a heroic shot of the clansmen riding off towards the gigantic moon yeah which totally birth of the nation yeah yeah right you know it, which is the first movie that Spike was forced to watch in film school was Birth of a Nation. Yeah. The choice to give them a heroic looking shot is brilliant and fascinating. It's the how can I say this correctly? It's the hypocrisy, right? He's showing the hypocrisy because white yeah. people at the time or the white people who lived in the South and were KKK members did see them as these heroic people and, you know, saving the white race and protecting the white race from those black people. And riding off into the moon is how they saw themselves, which is why I love that scene in Django Unchained when they're having those conversations about the sheets and who can see and who can't see and complimenting his wife for the sheets. Like, it's just brilliant because that's how it really probably fucking was. A bunch of Hmm. idiots getting together doing this kind of shit. And so the irony of this, this is how they see themselves as heroic attacking a defenseless woman and kids while their husband and father is away. And so it's showing you the hypocrisy of even remotely thinking these people were heroic in any way, shape, or form um, at all. Well, and it comes on the heels of a guy putting himself through physical pain in order to be more white, to be more like those guys. Yeah, right. You see, my father was not a frightened Negro as most were then and as many still are today. He was six feet four, a very strong man. He believed, as did Marcus Garvey, that freedom, independence, and self-respect could never be achieved by the Negro in America. The object of building up for themselves a great nation in Africa. And therefore, black men should leave America and return to the land of their origin. Which is so interesting because it has such echoes. It resonates so much with Malcolm X in a different way later on. My father dedicated his life to his beliefs because he had seen four of his six brothers die violently, three killed by white men, and one lynched. Again, that's a lot. Yeah. And then the next thing we hear about is his mother, who was fair-skinned because her, her mother was raped by a white man. One of the reasons she married my father was because he was so black. She hated her complexion, the white blood in her body, and she wanted her children to have some color. Again, the contrast with the guy who wants to look white. And his mom, who hates the white blood in her body. And Malcolm Malcolm X was relatively fair-skinned. Yeah. And then we, again, we're going to do, this is happen all the time, is we see flashes, and then we, but what we hear are gunshots. And this is a th- something that Spike is going to do throughout the film. Africa, for the Africa. 
say Roseland. Roseland. And we're back to the fun. So And we're at this club, a very famous club in Boston called Roseland that uh, Malcolm X did uh, go to and did work at. And one of the things I want to point out is how much younger he actually is at this time. Because Denzel looks like he's 25 or 30, right? Yeah. Malcolm X, when he first showed up at Roseland, was 16. Wow. Wow. He is much younger. And the very first night, so I I, I reread uh, the autobiography mm. in preparation for this. I will say a couple of things about it. One is that this movie is incredibly faithful to the autobiography. There's so many, so many biopics where it's really yeah. inspired by true events and they create a narrative that really isn't real. This one really is, except for one major, major thing, which I'll get to, which I think is both br half brilliant, absolutely fantastic that they made this change, and half I have a problem with it and I wish they hadn't done it that way. But I'll get to that. But one of the interesting things in the books, one of the things that Malcolm X talks about consistently is musicians. He yeah. loves music. Mm -hmm. And you want to know who was playing at Roseland the very first time that 16-year-old Malcolm Little showed up, Glenn Miller. <laughs> he met all of them, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Glenn Miller, all of them he knew and knew that, and they knew him as he got older, knew him personally, partially because he was the guy who got reefer for them, you know, <laughs> but he knew all the, and he talked so lovingly about all of this music. And apparently he really was a good dancer. And by the way, the person singing who had just started out was Peggy Lee that night. Wow. Uh, and he got a job shining shoes almost right away. Um, it's a good job for a colored working with the hands. Jeez. <laughs> oh, oh my God. <laughs> uh, he, by, by the way, he loved that job because he got to go to Roseland every night and yeah. listen to this music. So this is a big, huge musical number. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's Lionel Hampton who's playing, who's, uh, um, you know, the band that they're portraying there. Um, who was awesome with the with the um was it xylophone is that what it's called what do you call those xylophone yeah. xylophone mm -hmm. yeah but um the dance sequence the direction here it, i mean spike it's a crime spike's never directed a full musical that's right that's what i think yeah because i mean you look at school days he has a dance he has a couple of dance numbers in school days as well he knows how to shoot dance numbers this is an awesome scene and so much fun and seeing all the moves and the coupling that goes on and everything even the little mini stories going on with spike and the the uh, the uh larger woman there the jokes he's making and all of that shorty all that's funny it's really funny and you're i i watched this with my headphones and listening to the adr in the diff because that's based uh, you can hear it really well in the, in the headphones the all the different screams and things that are being said and all this stuff it's great it just adds even more ambiance to to what you're watching there and it's so well done by spike it's this fantastic thing. Again, we went from really fucking heavy mm -hmm. to now this joyful moment. By the way, Denzel does some great dancing. Mm. It's a beautiful lift. Oh. And I love the moment. I love this for multiple reasons. Where Spike slides forward on the ground through people's legs into the shot. I love it, A, because you can totally see the director, Spike Lee, realize that he's three inches shy of where, of where his mark is. <laughs> pull himself forward just a little bit to hit the spot and the other thing is this is how spike lee describes this shot he described it as his stanley don and vincent minnelli joint oh wow right yeah it shows the real reverence to musicals you know mm -hmm. 
by the way, Ernest Dickerson's mom knew Malcolm Little when he was in Boston. Wow. Yeah. And they met Shorty. Huh. He was still alive when they were making oh, this wow. film. Yeah. And the person that Malcolm is with is, is someone named Laura. Mm -hmm. Laura, by the way, is a real person that Malcolm met when he was working as an as a soda jerk serving ice cream. And this is he's 16 and she was young and she really did live with her very religious grandmother. And she was desperate, desperate, desperate to get to Roseland. And so they snuck out of her grandmother's house in order to get her to Roseland, where she apparently was a really good dancer. Yeah. Um, but that is not who uh, Malcolm is paying attention to right now. Yeah, she a church girl, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Because as she goes off to freshen up, we see this white woman, Sophia, Kate Vernon. They always hunted. They always hunted. Them. They always hunted. <laughs> this is, it's so funny because it's so, it's really sexy the way they handle this. Oh, She's yeah. also very predatory, I would yes. say. Yes. Like she has picked him. And also Spike does a great job of lighting her so that oh, yeah. she stands out, you know, cause the turquoise dress is going to stand out and her pale skin and bl bright blonde hair is going to stand out, but he, they light her so well that she stands out above everybody. And so when she beckons Malcolm over uh, in that moment, it's even more powerful and her telling him what to do, you know, and then says, you know, don't, don't run baby. It'll be here when you get back. It's like, oof. That it it'll be here when it'll be here. Sorry, right. it'll be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of interesting things that you said. One, John. Yeah. The the lighting in this whole scene is oh, just yeah. it's like a painting. It, everything the colors, and in concert with all the costumes, it's so intentional and purposeful. Nothing is just arbitrary at all. Yeah. And. Spike, I was thinking about this, and there's no coincidence that he picked a blonde hair, blue eye. Not a brunette, not a redhead. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he picked a blonde hair, blue eyed, fair skin, because that has somewhere been named like the symbol of, yeah. of white women, like the ultimate um, objectification of a white woman's eye, blonde hair, blue eyed. So I, I just found it really... Uh, not sad, but interesting how he plays the getting rid of the one for the mm. pedestal of the other. Mm -hmm. And as you said, Steve, that <laughs> it will be here, the predatorial. Yeah. Um, it, 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 the whole thing is sexy. The whole thing is oh, yeah. very, yeah. It's, it's simmering yeah. and uh, keeps you off balance. <laughs> and, and what makes it so hard is, is he, he takes Laura home, Grandma, who, by the way, is played by Denzel Washington's mom, uh, <laughs> is watching. And and he's kind of saying, I'll call you tomorrow. And she, what's so tough about it is she sees through the whole thing because she says, I'm not white and I don't put out. So why would you want to call me, Malcolm? And he leaves. And then we hear this crooner singing. And we're looking at this is one of Ernest Dickerson's favorite shots in the film. We're in this top down moving over this car showing them in the back seat. Am I the first white woman you've been with? Huh? Hmm? No, you ain't. <laughs> Shit, I done had plenty. Which I don't know that I think this is the first. Absolutely. Uh, and then there's this weird turn where she's, she's in charge and telling him what to do. Remember, I told you to walk. Don't run. Shh. I don't like women that talk too much, okay? 
We're getting little glimpses uh, to the assertion of power that he can put forth later on. But I don't know about you guys. When I first saw this, mm-hmm. I was terrified. Me too. They were going to attack the car. Yeah. I thought, I I thought the he cops was are going to show up. Yep. I still was. This last time watching it, I still <laughs> had that thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, it's it's. I love listening to people who know all sorts of stuff that I don't know, mm-hmm. um, and I listen to Ernest Dickerson talk about cinematography, which, as I've said many times, is my biggest weakness. I really that's not anything I'm good at. And uh, he used uh, a net. You can put a net on a lens, which means basically putting a fabric in front of your lens. And what he was talking about was that there are DPs who hoard one particular special piece of fabric that's magical. And the net that's on the lens for this first part of the film is a Christian Dior stocking. Oh, wow. Of a kind of brown color. And that's what gives everything that sort of warmer, nostalgic, slightly sepia look in this first section of the film. Interesting. And then, and again, it's so interesting. Shorty, Spike Lee, and Malcolm X playing like kids with guns, running through the park. I duck. You duck. I duck. I got you right between the toes. Man, I'm tired of playing the cops all the time. I want to be Bogart. Well, Shorty, you're too small to be Bogart. And by the way, Malcolm Little loved Hollywood movies, loved gangster movies. And then, as they're going bang, bang, the sound becomes real gunshots. And Denzel, who's been jumping over picnic benches and benches and stuff, he falls straight down into frame, his face right towards camera, which this shot Spike got from Billy Wilder, Ace in the Hole. That's where this shot comes from. Oh, wow. That makes- it's so funny because Spike talks like Martin Scorsese talks because yeah. he'll t- like this is from this movie and this I got from this movie. And, yeah. and Spike is there behind him in this low angle and says, you used to be a big shot. Nice little foreshadowing he does throughout, yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, it's the contrast in the scene to scene because we have this super hard, aggressive, painful cut yeah. to dad on the railroad tracks screaming. Ah! And you don't know, I mean, you know what it is, but you don't understand the context yet. Mm-hmm. And it's so jarring and scary and painful. Painful and every black kid's nightmare growing up. That that the clan's gonna come to your house and, wow. and get you. Wow. Really? God damn, dude. When did you, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you first started having that thought? I mean, <clears throat> you start learning about so okay. This would probably you know, be deemed as political. But we start learning about the Klan in school at a young age. And I think it's important that we do learn about it. I don't think that we should skip over it, act like it didn't happen. I don't think we should uh, brush by it. I don't think we should make the other kids feel like it's their, their, they had a part in it. Um, But I think it's important to, to note it. But as soon as we learn about it, couple things happen. I thought it was just me, but I, it's interesting to see it in my son and see how he identifies himself. Mm. So as soon as you learn it in like first grade, you start to become aware of your skin color. Like, oh, I, I look like one of them. And then second, third, fourth grade, as you go through um, elementary school, you learn about the Ku Klux Klan. By middle school, you're starting to really get the details of the Klan. 
as soon as you see them, it becomes the boogeyman to you. Yeah. Right. And then you, you watch, um, as you go through school, you watch color purple. As you go through mm-hmm. school, you, you read all the different books, uh, kill a mockingbird and, uh, you know, so you, you're becoming exposed. So as you become exposed to more pieces of literature and works of art, you start to develop your own story, not you, but I started to develop my own story. And I just was thinking about it because my son, this February, he was asking questions about Jackie Robinson. He was asking questions mm. like, why why'd they do that to him? And he was so upset. He was so sad about it. And he was talking about how daddy's skin is this color, mommy's skin is this color, and his is like in the middle. It's almost like he felt like his feelings were hurt. But what I loved is the opportunity it brought up to talk about how we treat people no matter what they look like. Now, he hasn't learned about the Klan yet, but I know that when I was in, you know, third, fourth grade, I said it's a really, when I was old enough to put things together in a way, like, is this going to happen here? And then you get mad because like, I want to go back in time and fix this. But you can't, you're just learning about it. So that's a long answer to tell you that it grows from the moment you learn about you, from the moment you become aware of uh, that you're different through the exploration of history in, in school, mm. the bigness of them, the scare, the scare tactics that they use. But then you realize they really were just scared, which is why they were hiding. I'm so glad you told the story and, and it just falls into the category of things that I should have known and didn't. Like the thought of the Klan is the boogeyman for a young black kid had never gone into my mind until you said it. And now that you've told that story, it's like, well, how else would you feel? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because when you're young, you, you don't necessarily have the context of that. Are they all gone? Hmm. You, you know, you still, you know, that they're still out there somewhere in a different context, not the same, but they operated in secret before. Are they operating in secret now? And what is a kid to think? And um, I think that's why some black kids are so hard and aggressive at such a young age. It's like they're preparing themselves just in case someone's going to try and get them. And uh, it's like building up their armor based on their environment. Um, it's funny. As, as a Jewish kid, I never grew up with Nazis as the boogeyman. You know, like just it's just different. And maybe it's because I grew up watching Hogan's Heroes all the time, you know, but like I didn't that it's not the same thing. And it just seems so profound. And this moment of dad on the railroad tracks and it's really quick and it's really loud and very jarring. And then you cut to a briefcase closing and a white man saying there's just nothing I can do. Yeah. It's showing the injustice. We can only rule on that. We can only pay out on the verdicts and the verdicts yeah. somehow claim that he took a hammer to him to the back of his head and laid down on train tracks. <laughs> I mean, to commit suicide, to commit suicide. I mean, just this is the kind of shit that white people have done to black people for decades in this country, you know, and you say, well, not all, obviously not all, I, you know, I'm using the general term, but not all, but like. It's it's enough that it was like you know there are probably there are probably millions of stories we're never going to hear about how black people were treated in the country and by the way both north and south let's make that fucking clear too um, oh yeah it happened all over the country during those times and well this the- wasn't the south I mean right exactly it's, yeah exactly this is this Detroit, I think this might right? be Indiana at this oh, point yeah. 
the or, no, no, it's I think it's Lansing. I think it's Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. Okay, yeah, yeah. But it definitely was not the South. Yeah, right. Um, exactly. By the way, I, I, I like the little bit of direction that the insurance guy. You can tell he feels a little yes. bit shitty when he's putting stuff away. Yeah, the close up again. What he talked about, Steve, the close up combined with the larger shots that helps. Yeah. And um, uh, and the actress, I can't remember her name, who's playing the mom. She's fantastic as as Malcolm's mom. Yeah, but this is it, you just watch this and you're just like, oh my god, it's so painful and and what they have to deal with and what they have to navigate yeah just and oh and, and i want to add something to what steve said steve maybe you don't feel this way because it's not germany what if you were a jewish yeah, kid growing up in germany you might feel that way that the nazis are coming to get you at any point just like black people feel in this country that the ku klux klan can come to get you at any point and yeah they're no longer you know under sheets anymore what's interesting with germany and obviously this, i won't go into this digression but they made a real concerted yes. effort to apologize and say, whoa, whoa, we that was really, really bad. And sadly, there are a lot of Nazis in Germany now. I mean, the that that yeah. anti-Semitic, it's really on the rise and it's real scary. Um, by the way, this thing about the insurance policy, 100 percent true. This is what <laughs> happened to his family. Yeah. And then you cut from that, from his mother and the white world taking things away and having power over her and her family to Malcolm in a bed with Sophia, the white girl. What's your story? When them white chicks can't get enough colored studs, is that what you are? And there's a look from her, and then he says, Kiss my foot. Mm. What's this scene about? I don't know how Jay feels, but I, I, I think it's power, and it's yeah. suspicion. And, I mean... Um, I don't know about any other culture, but in my Latino culture, making someone kiss your feet, that is huge. <laughs> okay. It is such a way to debase somebody, you know, even though, and uh, even though Christ kissed Mary Magdalene's feet and when he was washing them, you know, uh, you know, there's this approach, but like, it is an ego thing, you know, for sure. But he is pushing the boundaries, right? And he is testing how much power, because clearly, as we see a little bit later on in the movie, she gravitates to his ability for power, she gravitates to his um, uh, take no prisoners attitude, right? She likes it; it turns her on, you know. And so, seriously, in this moment, you know, she's like, "You're the man. I made you food. Eat the food." He's questioning her and all this kind of stuff. And by the way, we should say that's Kate Vernon, who's the actress playing that, and that is Dean Wormer's daughter, if you can believe it in real life. The actor John oh, wow. Vernon—that is her, his daughter. John Vernon, the most that. attractive man. Kate Vernon gorgeous so interesting how that can happen well yeah i think the the power struggle is there and putting <laughs> dipping his toe in the water so to speak <laughs> him him saying uh when are you gonna cry rape because yeah. now he's starting to think like okay here come and, and i was worried about that too i'm like yeah. it's gonna happen i'm just all the terrible things that could happen i think are going to happen it's like I'm just paranoid this whole time. And yeah. I think that first moment when he says you talk too much uh, to now, we see the bridge starting to form between him and him getting a taste and liking the power that he feels over somebody because he doesn't have it that often. Good point. Well, this is what's so I think this scene is so complicated because we just saw a scene of no power. We're not yeah. even going to pay the insurance money right. with his family. And then he takes power in this scene and says, I'm dominating over you. But at the end of the scene, the thing about are you going to call rape is an acknowledgement that on some fundamental level, she will always have the power 
because yeah. if she does that, he's in jail. Yeah, There's nothing he can or do. Done. Or dead. Yeah. Or, or dead. dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, again, that happened throughout the South. And certainly To Kill a Mockingbird is a, is a story about the accusation of that as well. And then uh, we cut from there to back to Laura, the the sort of sweet, more innocent girl. And they're walking on the beach um, and she is in blue and they kiss. And then, by the way, people making out fully dressed on the sand right at the <laughs> water's edge always seems a little like this doesn't seem like a smart choice to me. And she at this point seems to be saying that she would have sex with him. And he says no. Why? No, it's it's because of the white girl, isn't it? No, it's not because of that. Yeah, folks say you're running around town it's with her, It's not because Malcolm. of that. Just save it, all right, Laura? Save it for Mr. Wright because your grandmother's smarter than you think. Yeah, let me ask you two directors about this scene. Because first of all, I think it's shot beautifully. The way yep. he moves the camera to the right as they're walking past is fantastic. And then the shot from above down. And then the colors here of the clothes yep. that they're wearing is a really nice mixture of color. And yes, there is this moment where he refuses to take her virginity. Is this a way of, after we've just seen him kind of assert his power with this white woman, uh, is this his way of kind of respecting her and respecting his people? Is this a way to kind of get you back into feeling Malcolm is a decent fellow, even though we just saw him uncomfortably kind of assert power over, um, oh God, I don't remember her name. Sophia. Uh, Sophia, yeah. So- is that what we're seeing here where he's not taking Laura's virginity, but he is more than willing to engage what he's doing with Sophia? I mean, I really feel like it's as we are seeing the birth of Malcolm, but that birthing process goes through all these different stages, mm. uh, there's different um, levels of evolution, and he struggles. It's him shedding. He, he isn't a bad guy. You know, and it's funny because before we got on the call, uh, Steve and I were talking a little bit about the journey and the change and, and you know, what we see happen to people at the end of movies versus the beginning. Right. And we, it, it's so, it's very well written and very well directed where we are seeing all the elements of him. Yeah. Of, of Malcolm before Malcolm's created. So it's hmm. almost like we can accept and, and we can buy Malcolm because we've seen him have this human side. We've seen him have this struggle and taste for power. We're going to mm-hmm. see some more different elements before he's actually officially Malcolm X when he's little. And I think uh, it does get us back on his side. But you're like, okay, you know, he's not a terrible guy. Yeah. I think, I think hey, it's a great question, John. And uh, to me, I, I'm, I'm only going to speak for myself, but uh, maybe mm-hmm. you've had the experience where you're, you know, dangling your toes in a situation that maybe is dark, you know, and yes. there's a moment where, where you go like, man, this is a, this might be a little fucked up. Yeah. Is that I think Malcolm X or Malcolm Little at this time, he is all of the elements that will make him who he will be is here. Yeah. I think he knows in that scene with Sophia, that's a probably real turn on for him and exciting and thrilling. He knew that was fucked up. You know what I mean? And I think now, and he knows that Laura shouldn't go down this path right you know, right and maybe he caught a small glimpse of the path that he's gonna go down mm. and we end up with them uh eating ice cream and she asks if his mother is alive and he says yes she's alive and again it's that going from this happy sweet moment to something real dark yeah 
When I was a kid, I was so poor, I used to think that Not For Sale was a brand name. And then we see basically the social worker, who's played by Karen Allen. Yeah. Wanting to come in and ask questions. It's the same questions, Mrs. Little. Since the death of your husband, Murder. there is a serious question Murder. as to whether or not you are capable of raising these children on your own. And we see the camera go past the faces of these kids, and it's so painful. And I'll tell you from the book, this section, talking about how his family was split up, the level of anger in the writing is beyond anything else in the book. And there's some serious, serious things that he deals with in the book. But yeah. this moment, I mean, it is the seething rage you can hear in his language about what was done to his family. All of your children are delinquent, and one at least, Malcolm, is a thief. Get out of here. Your control over your children is therefore non-existent. Did you hear me? And mom is having none of it and sending her away, which of course is only making the situation worse. Yeah. You will regret this. If you don't move out through that door, you're going to be past regretting. Malcolm's mom did have mental health issues. They did get worse and worse in this time after the death of her husband. And I want to tell this one story, which, which, because, because it comes back later in the film, which is that they were really, really struggling for food. Malcolm was hungry a lot, which is why he was stealing. And at one point there was a neighbor who gave, wanted to give his family a, a pig to eat, you know, like they just slaughtered a pig and they're like, here, take it. And she refused because religiously she did not believe in eating pig and eating pork. And the social workers saw that, saw her refuse a whole bunch of food for a family that's really hungry. And this is one of the key things that made them go, she's crazy and have her committed. Yeah. Um, Yesterday. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot. This seems like a lot on your face right now. Well, I just felt so bad. Just she's telling him, you better get on out of here. Or are you going to be past regretting? You know, it's not going to help. You, right. But no. it's her own. It's her last shred of control that she can she can muster. And as we see her, that shot of, uh, you know, Denzel sitting on the floor with her in the corner in the rocking chair, Ugh. just basically she lost her mind. Like she broken heart yeah. and, and and just lost her mind because she he took away her. She's lost her husband, took away her babies. Mm. I mean, what do you? And this is what happened often, regularly. Yeah. And how much can a human being mentally and emotionally take? I know, I know we talked about the, we talked about the whippings and the lynchings and those are awful, but Steve, you have a child. Is there anything worse than potentially being ripped from your child, children after losing your partner? It's just, uh, it's heavy. And this movie's so heavy from like the, from the jump, you're just like, Back, like Bob and Weaving trying to get this emotional landmine. And um, Spike does a great job of invoking emotion just by images. Like I said, just the picture that it's a quick shot yeah. of, you know, her in the rocking chair and saying, I, don't, I forgot what she's saying. She's mumbling something. Oh, yeah. Don't, it, it's what Steve said. Don't give that boy no pig. That's what she oh, yeah, said. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. And I think this shows goes to the brilliance of the screenwriting. Because he inter the book is linear. The book yeah. starts off when he's born and goes straight. This starts off with a speech, then goes to you know to Roseland, then goes back and forth and back and forth. And so you don't get sunk into the heaviness. 
Hmm. quite as I, what I would say, here's what I would say is that rather than being just a living in the heaviness is that you have some joy interrupted by baseball bats to the fucking head. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very different experience. I think. I truly believe that if ever a state agency destroyed a family, it destroyed ours. I was sent to a detention home and lived at this woman's house. I was special, the only colored kid in the class. I became sort of a mascot, like a, like a pink poodle. In fact, I got called a nigger so much, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And we are alone in the class. The, I understand that the choice to put Mal, little Malcolm in a desk way in the back and the teacher way in the front is partially because that gives you room to do a nice dolly move <laughs> mm-hmm. to push in on him. But it also is so brilliant that they are so far apart and Malcolm looks so small. And the actor is David Patrick Kelly, who will, yeah, John's doing the gesture. He warriors, warriors, <laughs> come out and play, yay. Yeah. Which maybe that's a cinephile's live show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this speech is so fucking horrible. And part of its horribleness is how straightforward, I would say, the performance is. Now, the important thing is to be realistic. We all like you here, you know that. But you're a nigger, and a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why, Mr. Ostrowski? I get the best grades in class. I got voted class president. By the way, and everything that he says here is true. He really was elected class president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was one of the best students in the class. He was popular. He was doing really well. And his favorite teacher was this English teacher. Who said this thing to him? I want you to think about something that you can be. You're good with your hands. Making things. People would give you work. I would myself. Why don't you become a carpenter? That's a good profession for a color. Wasn't your pa a carpenter? Jesus was a carpenter. That's what I was saying earlier. Like, oh, that's a good good job for oh <laughs> gosh, it's so you said it's it. so bad. It it, it it, it is infuriating when you watch it. You feel a whole range of emotions because, you know, here it is, talented kid has all. What what direction could his life have gone? Not to say that his life was not meaningful and purposeful, but uh, this was their teachers telling them, hey, you're not enough. You're not going to ever be enough. So think small. Yeah. Look at, look at the world and be realistic. Right. And that's look, it's still happening today. Uh, oh, yeah. In in overt and not so overt ways, this idea that people of color, you know, you've come as far, you know what, you, you've come pretty far. You just, you know, the, don't start aspiring to do these other things. And it's it's not. And I spy. What if this is a piece of spike? Maybe somewhere along the way, some white teacher told Spike, you I can't bet. be a great famous black film director, you know, and. There's all kinds of things that you confront um, uh, with teachers. Teachers have such a powerful influence in what you can and can't accomplish. And certainly in, in, in your formative years, a teacher believing you can make such the difference, you know, and what he says, I think he says this here, the voiceover is like, how many of, of could have uh, been, or oh, maybe it's later on in the movie where he it's says later on, many, but yeah. Yeah. He says like, how many can, you know, this person could have been that and could have been that could have been a lawyer, could have been a one cured cancer. Could have, and we hear that all the time because we see that in the inner city schools that there are a lot of intelligent kids and they have to be like, uh, they have to be like a rose out of the growing out of the concrete before people notice it. And it's because the system's not set up to help people like that, whatever color they are, 
to climb out of those systems. Yet all those systems could be yielding incredibly intelligent kids if we spent more time uh, building up those systems, uh, you know, uh, putting money into creating better systems to help them succeed, to help them achieve the things that they want to achieve and can achieve. And we will all benefit from the things they're going to achieve. And that's why it's so powerful, this scene, you know, and you're right, Steve, I didn't even think I, because you two are directors, of course, it makes sense. To me, I just like, okay, this makes, this is a cool setup and I get, but I didn't understand. Oh yeah. The dollying moving back. It totally makes sense. You can play it that way. And he's so heartbreaking. That little kid actor saying all that stuff. You can feel the pain in his voice. You're like, Oh my God, how can you say this? You know, so I had a teacher. Mm. I won't name. We had an assignment to write a play. And I was not very confident in my writing, uh, uh, you know, teleplay uh, form, but I did it anyway. That was the assignment. I got a D minus, and the comments were writing will not be your thing. This is not very good. You shouldn't, don't, don't attempt it. Like, yeah. You know, steer, stay in your basically stay in your lane. Don't try to do. Don't try to write because yeah. you're not a good writer. I remember. I remember he, it was graded in purple pen, just written all over, basically just tearing me down. And I'm a kid, you know. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm a teenager. Uh, how old were you, teenager? I was six, fifteen, fourteen. That's formative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like this guy, he probably was thinking he was doing you a favor. Absolutely. And I I believe you may have said, uh, trust me, I'm doing you a favor. I will do you one better. I'll do you one better. Try being hired full time at an outlet and having the white editor tell you you can't write, even though you had written for a bunch of other websites before you were hired full time. Having Hmm. the white editor say to you, hey, writing's not everybody's thing. You, you, you can't write. The, the problem is you can't write. Instead of saying, let's get you better. Let's figure this out. Let's hone your hone what we want to get from you here. And that's what happened. I don't mind saying it. It was, it was frosty. It was Weintraub, Steve Weintraub over there at uh, Collider. He told me, you're, you're not a writer. Uh, you're just not a writer. And meanwhile, Jeff Snyder has hired me on multiple things to write for him. And I've gotten multiple compliments about writing. So like that angered me on so many levels this idea of like oh i'm having a white man tell me i can't fucking write like i, I get you know what i'm saying it, it still happens it still happens infuriated me. i sent this person the movies that i sold <laughs> that i wrote <laughs> written oh, by andre awesome. gordon i'm said, so thank happy. you thank you for your motivation oh back in my younger days I was listening, I think it was Jeffrey Tambor when he was on Mark Marin years ago, talking oh, yeah. about the importance and value of spite and how he's <laughs> like, spite is my main motivation. And I totally agree with that. I will, I will say, by the way, as a guy who's taught a lot of film school, there are tons of people who can't write. Yeah. Writing is a skill that a lot of people don't have. I would never, ever tell anyone they can't write, even if I was certain that they could, couldn't. Right. Uh, I'll say well, just one other quick thing because it's made me think of it is we're as little kids particularly so suspe- susceptible to the model that people put on us oh, yeah. as who who can you be and one of the ones has nothing to do with race that I've heard and seen so many studies on is people going up to little girls and saying you look so pretty that's a pretty dress mm-hmm. 
And that framing of the value of appearance for women will haunt them for their entire lives. Yeah. You know, whereas, the, whereas they go up to the boy like, oh, you're good at sports or, oh, you did this or, they, but you're really pretty. That says, oh, that's where my value is. And printing. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, this moment really did happen to Malcolm X. And this moment, he went from being the class president who was the best student to the worst kid in the school because he was betrayed by his favorite teacher. And that's how it feels. I like yep. a betrayal. And then we're back with him talking to Laura, and she says, it's not the end of the world, Malcolm. And then we go to this moment, Andre, that you described before of mom in the rocking chair and Malcolm in the corner, and he looks up in that zoot suit, which is totally outside of reality, and he's so fucking powerful. Mm. We're on a train because Malcolm's got a job working for the railroads, and we are listening to the Joe Lewis fight. And he wins, and they celebrate, and in comes the boss saying, you got to get back to work. A lot of hungry customers out there. Yes, sir. Soup done finished, Mr. Cooper. That's right, Mr. Charlie. The name is Mr. Cooper. And don't you forget it. Well, real quick, this moment here with the Joe Lewis fight, obviously this is a, you know, Joe Lewis was one of those idols for, for black people back then who was was doing something they, you know, that they could feel proud of being a champion and all of that. I mean, Joe Lewis shows up and coming to America in those conversations. One of the first icons, you know, historically. But watching this interaction here with the different generations of black men and Malcolm is so interesting, right? Because they're all like, he's good white folk. Uh, I got kids, blah, blah, blah. So it's all the excuses of not fighting against the white establishment. You know, I need this job. Or he doesn't treat me that bad. And it's Malcolm who's sitting here rabble rousing and showing his um instincts to be rebellious against the white establishment so laying really subtle moments of foundation for why he's going to make the decision he's going to make later on in the film and in his life so uh, i think the scene carries such weight in the back and forth the willingness he has to kind of he's smart enough to know how to stick the the fork in without being obvious too obvious about it you know and then he's out, totally different personality, selling to the white people in the car. And he is, I'm going to say, putting on a show. Hey, man, cheese here. I got coffee. Lemon meringue pie. Mm-hmm. Got mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Yes, sir. You want to have ham and cheese? Yes, sir. Best in the house, sir. You're mighty pleased with yourself, huh? I aim to please, sir. I'm pleased to aim. I like you, boy. Thank you, sir. And then we see him slam an egg in this guy's face. <laughs> and then we see it didn't happen. Yeah, it's fantasy. Let's go to Harlem, where they're celebrating the Joe Lewis victory. Mm. Malcolm gets off the train wearing this ridiculous blue and gold. And I'm going like, how is he affording these outfits? <laughs> like, these are some outfits. Huge, huge crowd. He kisses this woman in the crowd that was improvised. She did not know she was going to get kissed. She Whoop. was not all that funny, all that happy about it. Bad not. And he ends up now in this red outfit uh, Mm. in a bar, in a club. And this is very, very different from Roseland, where people are more sober, more calm. And you see that the bright color, they're not wearing outfits like his. And he walks in, bumps into a man, a pretty big dude. My man. The word is excuse me, boy. Excuse me, don't shine my shoes, my man. You should have stayed out my way. He calls him an old country N-word. Hmm. Uh, what you going to do? Go home to your mama? Hmm. Now, I will say, in the book, in the autobiography, he said, 
The reason that Malcolm X never talked about his mother was he knew that if anyone ever said something slightly wrong about his mother, he would not be able to control his temper and would become violent immediately. And this is 1963 Malcolm X. This is not 1946 Malcolm X or 45. And he looks like he's going to leave as he's grabbing his hat and instead grabs a bottle, knocks him down and says, Nigga, don't you ever in your life say anything against my mother. And I love the shot from below. It's such a great shot, right, of him like, you know, and him in the foreground, the guy who's been hit in the foreground and then Malcolm right above just doing this power thing. So we see that there's an there's a building anger inside Malcolm yes. from this reaction, right? But the subtle thing after he's done, the <laughs> yep. smooth yeah. smooths your jacket out. Like yeah. it's, it's he's still he's still married to the old self, to the pre-Malcolm self, to the suit. And this moment, this moment of basically his temper, his violence, his ready for action is going to change his life because sitting in the corner. Watching all of this transpire is West Indian Archie, Delroy Lindo. And this is a man who's going to have a profound, profound effect on his life and gives a profound performance. But you will have to wait until part two of our exploration of Malcolm X to see what happens when Malcolm Little meets West Indian Archie. Of course, that's what we think of the beginning of, of Malcolm X. We'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page or do a search for the Cinephiles there. We are Cine underscore files on Twitter, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. I think I reversed that, but it doesn't matter. No, I think that's the right way. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or wherever you like. Leave your reviews there. Um, and if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. Buy or stream Malcolm X on cinephiles.net. John, how would they find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. And don't forget my other podcasts, The Top 10 and The Geek Buddies. Andre, once again, this is an absolute yeah. pleasure having you along. Thank you so, so much. How would people find you and your work? We, my my home address is not, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at Andre Gordon official on Instagram at Andre Gordon official on TikTok at Four Horsemen Studios on YouTube and at Andre Gordon official on Facebook fan page. Uh, thank you. Everyone should go out watch all those movies and follow Andre in all those places. Yeah. And uh, I think that is it for this week. We will be back with Malcolm X part two on another episode of The Cinephiles. Mm -hmm.